0: Can you say amen? Amen. You know, as I was listening, to lift up the trumpet just made me want to stand up. What an awesome thing. Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we put our lives in your hands now as we open your word. Please help us to open our hearts. Do what you would. May you be fully God. May you be the potter. May we be the clay. Touch us, Lord, transform us according to your divine will. And now send your spirit down amongst us to make this truly worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, we've got a problem. The problem is if we proclaim Jesus is coming again, and we just live fairly ordinary routine lives, we actually deny the proclamation in the ordinary routines of who we are and what we do. We've got another problem. Uh, Last week we looked statistically at where our church was headed, and while I'm a tremendous optimist, I like to think I'm in the lines of William Wilberforce, who was described by his chief cook as an eternal optimist, I do believe that it is important for us to pay attention and be discerners of the times. So let's have just a little bit of fun here. As we start, I've been looking at statistics on our church recently, and that is the World Church. The good news is, is that every 23 seconds, someone is being baptized into this three angels' message. Amen? Amen. And every 3.7 hours, according to the year-end report for 2017, a new church is being formed. So that means from the time you got here to go to Sabbath school until the time you leave, when you get home, another new church will be being dedicated somewhere in the world. It only took us... Well, let's see, it took us, if I can read my statistics properly here, well, let's do this different. In 1863, when we were formed as a church, we had one Seventh-day Adventist for every 373,143 other persons on the face of the globe. That began changing slowly. Within seven years, it was down to one Adventist for every quarter of a million people. Those aren't very good statistics, but remember what God says, don't disdain the day of little things. They began changing rapidly, and by the time we come to the end of the last century, we're down to one Seventh-day Adventist for every 795 people. That's an amazing change, from one from every 373,000 down to one for every seven hundred and ninety-five. In 2009, when these statistics cut off, we're down to one Seventh-day Adventist for every 418 people on the face of the planet. This morning, I'm here to tell you there are 19,000 plus Seventh-day Adventist ministers who have been sharing the word of life this morning. Many of them are done already. Some of them will follow right here. Your church employs active full-time, part-time, and casual employees in the number of over 300,000 people. You are part of an amazing organization. What you do here impacts what happens all around the world. And this morning, I just want to tell you that we're going to have to stop and be discerners of the times and pay attention to where we're at because something has been stalking us to take away our power, our future, and the promises of victory. I didn't realize it when I began this ministry that is the Seventh-day Adventist ministry about 30 years ago, but very slowly it began to settle on me that if God's church is going to go forward, they're going to have to do what we do individually. Hopefully we're doing it individually. I'm afraid a number of people aren't, and that's why it leaves us weak. We're going to have to stretch. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God because those who come to Him must believe He exists and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You cannot stand and sing, lift up the trumpet, Jesus is coming again, and then go back and do another six days of living where my life isn't focused around that message. One is inconsistent with the other. And so this morning, the strange thing that has come to my awareness over these three decades of pastoring is that if our churches are going to have, if they're going to come to life They're going to come back to life. They're going to spend themselves back to life. And you say, oh, pastor, get out of my pocketbook. But I'm here to tell you, that pocketbook is full of money that was only provided by the health, vitality, education, and wherewithal of Jesus Christ. And this morning, uh, some of the things I'm going to look at could be discouraging. Some of the things I'm going to look at could be superbly encouraging. But I want you to understand, because part of what I'm sharing with you this morning is a promise from the book Upward Look, where Ellen White says, The Lord leaves in darkness no man who has an ear to hear and a heart to understand. It's a beautiful promise. When when David declares in Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. With my eye upon you, I will counsel you. Listen, this is a fantastic promise that if you want the living God to be the shepherd of your life, if you'd like to know when to go left and when to go right, if you'd like to know when to spend and when to save, if you'd like to know what job to take and what to leave for somebody else, you have the promise of the living Lord Jesus Christ to be your shepherd. Now, the problem is, is that slowly we have been stalked by a culture of affluence. We have more money, more opportunity, more education, more mobility than we've ever had. And it's left us in a position to wear less and less resources by way of percent. I learned this this week. Discourage me to learn it. Do you know that during the Great Depression, God's people gave more as a percent of their income than they're giving today? That's pretty sober. Back when people were losing their farms and losing their automobiles and standing in bread lines as a percent of income, they gave more in the early 30s than they're giving today now something about that seems a little bit off but of course today we have reasons it does seem that uh, we might be able to do better than they and maybe the work could expand more exponentially not just with addition and not just with multiplication but maybe in this amazing doubling fantastic formula that allows two to reach two more and now those four can reach four more And then those eight can reach eight more, and those 16, and the numbers multiply their way on out. I had three people this week. had a very interesting week. On Monday night in the board meeting, we voted something that I'd love to see every Seventh-day Adventist church in the area participate in as well. Andrews University has a summer academic program for the inner-city students of Benton Harbor last year they took in i think 16 students they had phenomenal success in improving their math scores but what's more important is they fed them good adventist food had great christian devotional times with them wonderful dialogues and those young people came away seeing themselves differently than they did before it was an amazing thing on monday night in board we voted to sponsor two of their students if there are other churches represented here today, I'd like to encourage you to join us in that sponsorship. On Monday Night on Board, we voted to send some extra financial resources with the Amazon mission trip, believing that we could hold up their hands as they evangelize. It takes a lot of money to run those boats up and down those rivers. And we believe that our funding will make their evangelistic efforts go that much better. At the end of the meeting, I challenged the people... This Sabbath, I would be talking with you about Neighbor to Neighbor. Now, Neighbor to Neighbor is in a very wonderful and unique position. They have 100 plus volunteers, a growing ministry. Their revenue base is growing. That's important because Neighbor to Neighbor does their ministry on the backs of the consignment shop. Now, by the way, everybody here, I would highly encourage you. Go ahead and go there. It's like going to another secondhand store. Save all you can, Wesley said. Make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And those consignment resources allow the ministries to go for. Ministries to the poor with food and clothes. Ministry to the addicted. Ministry to the traumatized. All of these ministries are supported by the consignment store. So drop your things off and go back and buy someone else's stuff. if you need it. Have you ever driven by there and seen how much stuff is sitting outside? If you've ever peeked into the back have you ever seen how much stuff they got into the inside? The place is packed out. What most of you may not realize, of course if you read the newspapers uh, you know that Neighbor to Neighbor has an approved expansion plan. The problem is they're still a few tens of thousands of dollars away from being able to hit the threshold to get their Lake Union Revolving Fund note. Now, I sent an email out to all the members that we had email addresses for here mentioning that starting this Sabbath, I'm going to start collecting a special offering for neighbor-to-neighbor. Neighbor-to-neighbor is in a position where until they get that money, they can't dig. Which means there'll be that many more Sabbaths when you walk by and see all that stuff that got rained on in this exceptionally gray and rainy spring we're having. But you know they send scads of stuff on to goodwill and to be recycled. All of that being resources that could be utilized by them to achieve their mission. I actually had my wife telling me this morning about a visit she had with Laura Meyer who said yes I needed to live on the south side of the town and come to this church so on Sabbath morning I didn't have to drive by and see all that stuff sitting out there. Laura is the director of our Neighbor to Neighbor program. This morning, I'm going to take you on a journey that goes into the Word of God that testifies of His goodness and His faithfulness and that hopefully challenges you to join with many others in establishing a strong, vibrant, beneficent, and giving spirit Take your Bibles if you would this morning and open them up to Matthew chapter 13. Sons of heaven, sons of hell meeting on the Sabbath day. I don't think I need to establish in your mind overly some of these facts, but I do want them to be there so that you don't glide towards eternity thinking that you're going to slip in through the doors because it doesn't work that way. There's a Christian discipline and discipleship that becomes a part of our journey. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to be looking at verses 24 and onward. It says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us to go out and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And then I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them and gather up the wheat into my barn. If you skip down to verse 38, you see the interpretation. The field is the world and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Now, lest we have any confusion, the parable is about the kingdom of God. It appears in the beginning that everybody is good seed. It appears that their hearts are turned over to God. He can extract the rocks and the weeds and that there's going to be a fruitful harvest. But as time goes by, it becomes evident that even inside the church, there are individuals who are not really letting Jesus be Lord and are not faithful stewards. This parable is one in which I imagine all of us who came to church here today imagine themselves to be the good wheat, wanting to produce good fruit, wanting to be fruitful for Jesus. I don't think anybody came here today saying I'm a tear I'm on my way to hell I'm gonna be gathered into a bundle and my existence will come to a speedy end by a merciful God because he knows I don't want to be with him forever that's not how you got up and came to church today it's not the attitude and the posture of who you are but what you need to know is that you are being stalked by the slickest liar and the best strategist that's ever lived and when he found persecution wouldn't work he eventually turned to Uh, abundant blessings and amazing distractions, hoping that we might not tend the garden of our heart. This parable is about the church, and Jesus says, Let him who has an ear listen. Turn over to chapter 7 of the same gospel, Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we have Jesus talking about false prophets. He's in the midst of describing people, and trees, and using symbols and images. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. If there has ever been something true about God's true prophets, they give a faithful warning when there is potential hazard and trouble. We're living in an age of assurance where many false prophets are encouraging many to feel good as they glide down the wrong road. True prophets will speak words of hope, but they will also announce the warning against the enemy. Verse 16, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Skipping down to verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a sober statement. They obviously aren't uttering the words for the first time. Lord, Lord. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do work in your name, prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They come all the way up to the kingdom of God, and they don't know God. They went to church every Sabbath, and they don't know God. They proclaimed His word, and they didn't really know God. They delivered from demons, they performed miracles, and they didn't really know God. Now I want to tell you how it happened. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 22. This is how it happened. They were a very religious group of people. But there was something missing from their fellowship, something missing from their journey. It's just like those in the days of Jesus. They were very routine in their religious affairs, but there was something about their heart that was out of cadence with the forward movement of the kingdom of God. Verse 15, It's verse 16. He pleaded the case of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Now, I'm here this morning to plead the case of the afflicted and the needy. When you go home today or when you walk into that fellowship center, you're going to eat a good meal. All of you came here looking like you have a wash machine and a dryer or else enough money to go to the laundromat. If I were to walk through the parking lot, I'd see you all have decent vehicles. And since I know most of you, I understand that you have the benefit of Christian culture, good parental discipleship, and a desire to walk and serve Jesus Christ. But you know what? It's not enough that we come to church every Sabbath. It's not enough that I stand up here and preach every Sabbath. There's a component to our Christianity who cares for the ones who have not been delivered from the wretched grip of poverty The disadvantages of ignorance and the absence of good family structure and culture a mother and a father today I'm here advocating on behalf of an ever increasing compassion in the hearts of this group of Christians and if I challenge you to stretch just a little bit not only am I not embarrassed or apologetic about it I'm actually your best friend and before the sermon's over, you'll understand that just a little bit more clearly because if there is a tendency in Christianity, it is that as you follow Christ and you learn to be a contented person with a purpose, you develop habits of industry and thrift and you actually find your financial well-being improvement. It's almost a matter of fact. The problem is if it does not take on purpose and our hearts are not stretched with compassion, Our hearts get littler and littler, and all of our religious activity actually proves to be a smokescreen to the warnings of the Holy Spirit that there's a world to win. And we can't sing, Lift Up the Trumpet, without financing it and working to support it with our time, energies, and efforts. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus had strong language. For the Pharisees and we say, oh yeah, that was the Pharisees. That's not us. I'm not a Pharisee. Well, you know, I suspect there's more than one way to end up in this condition. It could be that you love the world and appear to be a very gracious person. It could be that you love the Lord and are just heartless. I don't know. But Jesus used some strong language. He said in Matthew 23, 15, woe to you scribes and Pharisees because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Is this Jesus that you're worshiping here today? Or is it too strong for Jesus to say these things? He's the most counterfeit, controversial figure in all of the New Testament, indeed the most controversial figure in all of the Bible, and indeed the controversy that we're involved in that we call great is a controversy about the character of God. But this God loves us enough to say, listen, all of you at the upper ends, the upper echelons of the religious pecking order, you need to know something. You're hiding behind your religious expression and I'm not content for you to be lost. So I have no problem recognizing that you'd love to build your religious kingdom, but I'm after more than that. I'm looking to win your heart. And since I can see it, not me, but Jesus, I'm going to talk to you about it. Turn over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. Jesus is involved in probably one of the fiercest conversations he will ever have with the Pharisees. John chapter 8. He talks about two fathers in verse 38. He says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. It's a very religious setting. It's a church group. It's even church leaders. And Jesus is saying, look, there's two spiritual uh, ways to be, be reconciled as adherents To religious faith. There's true religion and there's false religion. And he's in a contest of words here. Skip down to verse 44. He says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Skip down to verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. And for this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Verse 54 Jesus answered, He said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he's our God and you have not come to know him but I know him and I say that and if I say that I do not know him I will be a liar like you but I do know him and I keep his word Jesus was not afraid to say some things that would seriously unsettle the spiritual complacency of His day. And any preacher that's not willing to follow in the path of Jesus better get out of the profession because He is the model without mistake. A preacher's job, a father's job, a mother's job, a teacher's job is not just to give pats of encouragement on the way to a high mountain called self-esteem. A pastor's job, a, a, a parent's job, is to make sure that people find the path of life. And like Jesus, when people are veering hard off one way or the other, He steps in the way and says, Listen, you're taking your directives from a carnal nature, not from heaven. Pretty serious stuff. Now as I was preparing last Sabbath and looking at words and the life experience of John Wesley, I came across a few other things that were directing my thoughts. And so this morning, sons of heaven, sons of hell, gathering or meeting together on this Sabbath day, just a few thoughts from one of Wesley's sermons. He says, it was a common saying among Christians in the primitive church, the soul and the body make a man, the spirit and discipline make a Christian. Now, if we just stopped right there and you went home and thought about it, you'd have a lot to think about. How much discipline is in your Christian experience? Or is it primarily about your comfort and your feeling good? It is the spirit and discipline that make a Christian, implying that none could be real Christians without the help of Christian discipline. But if this be so, is it any wonder that we find so few Christians for where is Christian discipline? Now this is Wesley. You didn't understand that Wesley raised up one of the most mighty churches that the modern Christian experience in the days post-Reformation have ever seen. He goes on to say, whenever or whatever doctrine is preached where there's not discipline, it can't have its full effect upon the hearers. And then he goes back to his three rules. There are three rules which are laid down. You find many that observe the first rule, namely gain all you can. You may find a few that observe the second, save all you can. But how many have you found that observe the third rule, give all you can? And then he says, nothing can be more plain. Then all who observe the first two rules without the third, make and save, without give, will be twofold more the children of hell than ever they were before. He goes on to address the rich. He basically says, you're not doing with your resources what you ought to do. And then he says, did God command this? Did he commend you for doing so? And he does. And does he now say, servant of God, well done. You know he does not. The idle expense has no approbation from God or your conscience. But you say, oh, this was tough. But you say, you can afford it. Now, I don't know how many people might be listening to me here today who are returning an honest tithe and potentially giving an offering. I hope many, I hope most, I hope all. But beyond that, it's as if you have wardened off your financial conscience that God might ask anything else of you. But for some luxury, for some unnecessary want, you can find a thousand reasons, and the last one, the icing on the cake is, well, I can afford it. He goes on to say, Oh, be ashamed to take such miserable nonsense into your mouths. Nevermore utter such stupid cant, such palpable absurdity. Can any steward afford to be an errant knave to waste his Lord's goods? Now, anybody who wasn't a truth seeker would say, I'm not going back to listen to him. He just insulted me. But anybody that wanted to walk the road to the kingdom might say, maybe I better look at my life. The more I observe, he goes on to say, and consider these things clearly appears to me what is the cause. The Methodists grew more and more self-indulgent because they grew rich. And it is an observation which admits few exceptions that nine out of ten of these decreased in grace in the same proportion they increased in wealth. I want you to follow the logic. Because what has happened in the last 50 years is that a whole society has gotten rich and increased with goods. And is it possible that 9 out of 10 have decreased in grace to the same proportion they've increased in goods? Wesley says this is a rule almost without exception. But how astonishing a thing is this? Does it not seem that true scriptural Christianity has a tendency in process of time to undermine and destroy itself? You become a Christian, thrift, industry, self-denial, you're bound to get rich. Wherever Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things begets riches. And riches naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that's destructive to Christianity. But is there a way to prevent this? I can only see one possible way. Find another if you can. Do you gain all you can? Do you save all you can? Then you must in the nature of things grow rich. Then if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, strong words, give all you can. Otherwise, as he ends his sermon, he says, I have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. Dublin, July 2, 1789. It's important for us to realize, friends, that what persecution couldn't do, abundance seems to have done. Now, I'm here to say that I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that as soon as God starts using us, our time, our talent, and our resources, we will start to sense the glorious you know, Maslow said self-actualization. I like to think of it as a savior or a savior actualization where you find out you're being used in the cosmic battle to drive back the forces of darkness and take the hills of light. Now, several years ago, it became an imperative of this pastor that we pray our way into God's will, corporately as a church. And I remind you that there was a day when we weren't putting all the light bulbs in the light fixtures in this church and it didn't look nearly so pretty, and the pews weren't quite as filled. One of the first things we did was we prayed. Prayer is not a perfunctory role at the beginning of an administrative meeting. Prayer is an invitation for the Holy Spirit to come down and be the administrator of our family. If you don't want Jesus administrating your family, woe be unto you. You have a foe that is mightier, smarter, and more tactical than you are. We prayed for God to guide us in the midst of that prayer. God moved on our hearts that we would pledge money for this Montana church that we're building. $50,000 when we had no money. It was an important step to take because as I said we must be stretched into an experience that allows God to show that he's real. He's on the battlefield and he can fund his warfare. Over a period of time certain things began to happen. There was Years ago, from this very congregation, Gary and Marla Marsh moved out to Montana following their children who had jobs on the reservation in the northeast corner of Montana, Fort Peck. Their daughter-in-law worked for one of the health ministries on the reservation. She was there for a while, made a positive contribution, but then the children left and Gary and Marla in their 70s had to make a decision. What are we going to do? Are we going to follow the kids around or are we going to serve right here? God confirmed in their heart and mind they should be right there. And God began using them mightily to make very positive interactions with those on the reservation. They started turning bad attitudes by God's grace into good attitudes. They started turning around bad memories and making good memories. Then Gary got an idea. Now, mind you, he's in his 70s. His father had been a physician. When his father died, he left him a piece of property in California. That property was sold, and Gary dedicated the resources to building a church on the reservation. Now there are other Adventists on the reservation but none nearly so committed to this idea having a light, a Seventh-day Adventist church with a building right there on that reservation. Gary said, the money that my father left for me I am pouring into this work. And so he started looking for a piece of property. He found three of them together in the center of town. They were going to come up for sale as a tax sale. The conference office had an officer or two there. They were there the day of the auction. They bought the property, and we thought, it's time to go. But you know what? Things dragged. For some reason, it was very hard to find the title and the last person who could make a claim to it in that tax sale to where the property could not be taken away from us after we had raised the money, or I should say Gary had donated the money. During that period of time, Gary wasn't waiting. It was a property where the old hospital had been. The old hospital had been burned down as an act of vandalism and all that was left were the cement walls and the place had become the garbage pit of the city. Gary took the rest of his money and he started getting contracts to clean it up. He got the garbage out. He got the concrete out. All the while we're waiting, one year goes by, two years goes by, we can't understand this. And then finally, the final details are taken care of, and the statement is, the land is owned free and clear. We can go. What did we do? Last fall, we sent two groups out there. They were busy putting in the cement walls. They were busy putting in the interior walls, putting on the deck, putting in a stairway. They were out there in the late of night and the cold. They were driving those very difficult 20-some hour trips back and forth, sometimes all in one stretch the most miserable part of the whole experience when you're in a hurry. And then wouldn't you know it, the strangest thing happens. After everything starts to go, Gary gets sick and has to move off the reservation. I mean, this is just in the last three or four months. This is just since November when we got the basement in. And it's like, Lord, what are you doing? Did we make a mistake? How can you say no to a 70-some-year-old man who says there must be a church here? And I'll put my tens of thousands into it. Instead of taking a relaxed vacation like retirement in Arizona or Florida, I'm going to stay here in the cold of the very northeast corner of Montana where the wind howls and the wind chills go down to 80 below zero. But we started wondering. Not too long later... Someone called up the Montana conference and said, you know what? It was a doctor from California. Praise the Lord for these physicians. They have a very mission-minded, many of them, frame of life. And they said, we've been following your program and we want to make a donation. They didn't tell how much, but they went on to say something that was probably more important. They said, not only do we want to make a donation, but we are going to fund a Bible worker on that reservation So all of a sudden, the personnel dynamic has been solved. But there were still more challenges. Because as uh, Pastor Dennis was ordering materials and organizing us to go last fall, we were spending through the money. And when we got down to uh, the late winter, early spring here, we realized we only have $25,000 in that fund. Now, that fund is not our fund. That's the Montana Conference. And so, uh, fortunately, the Stevensville Church Is joining with us and they sent ten thousand dollars out now we're up to thirty five thousand dollars but you know what when we sat down with one of our contractors and looked at the building project Jim Hippler he said it's gonna take about eighty to ninety to finish this thing just to get it up out of the ground get the doors and windows on it and the decking on the roof and the trusses on and the shingles on and that has nothing to do with what the drywall and the electricity and all the plumbing and all those kind of interior costs would be but just to go forward we're gonna need ninety thousand dollars now remember, there was 25, and then because the Stevensville Church sent 10, there's 35. 35 to 90 for all you mathematicians is $55,000. Now I pick up my uh, I pick up my spreadsheet from the Montana mission trip. Now I don't want to confuse anybody with this, but. Here's the long and short of it, as Pastor Page was reconciling our financial expenses from El Salvador, where God blessed us on a mission trip, the way the numbers worked out were kind of a miracle. And when we got down to the end, I said, you know, Pastor, the way that worked out, kind of like winning the lottery, and he said, or getting $55,000 for Montana. Now we don't have 55, we didn't have 55,000 for Montana, but let me tell you what happened not too long ago. There was a church out in Montana somewhere in the North Pacific Union that said, we want to fund this project. And when they thought about it, they came up with 5,600 and some odd dollars. Well, that's a fair ways off from 55,000 dollars. So they sent the money to the union office. And the union office did what all good union offices do. They processed the money and they wrote a check and they sent it to the Montana conference. But for all the dedicated, highly intelligent, very careful financial people we have, a mistake was made. And when they wrote the check, they wrote the check, are you ready for this? For 55600 and some odd dollars. Now, what did the Montana treasurer do when he got that check? He looked at it, he smiled, and he went rapidly to the bank and put it in the bank. (laughs) Now, he didn't know it was a mistake. Nobody did. Until a few days later, someone from the North Pacific Union called up and they said, "Um, we sent you $50,000 too much. Now you have a problem. But you know what? I was sitting in the room on Thursday... When the Montana conference treasurer called to talk to Pastor Dennis. And I think he said, are you sitting down? I can't remember. But he said, they have decided to let us keep the money. (laughs) Now, I have an envelope here. By the way, there is a Seventh-day Adventist giving app. I think it's called Adventist giving. If you don't have it, and it would be easier for you to make contributions that way, go ahead and get it. But this is the Seventh-day Adventist giving app came in this letter. And as I sat there listening to the phone call, this is what the treasurer said. He said, God picked up the pen and wrote the check himself. Now what if five years ago we didn't take our first step and put our first $35,000 in there, joined with Stevensville, We need about 5,000 more to finish our pledge. And what if the North American division had never sent their money? They sent $50,000. Can you say amen? And what if that church in Montana would never have sent their five? God got the union in the game His own way. Can you say amen? amen? Now listen. The treasure went on to say, God put wind in the sales of this project and I'm just here to tell you today there's $90,000 in a fund out there so this building's going forward this summer. It's a glorious, glorious provision of the Lord. Friends, whether it's El Salvador or Montana, God has a way to make things work. Now we're not quite done, almost. Monday night we had this board meeting and we voted money for the inner city project Cooperate with Andrews University, praise the Lord for that good vision. And by the way, I just need to let you all know, total aside, while the dairy closed a little over a few months ago or whatever, they have a completely new plan for agriculture at Andrews University, and you ought to be praying for it. I'll be bringing you more information on that. It's very, very exciting. But you know, on that Monday night, we voted to send this money to Amazon and send this money to the inner city or over to Andrews University for the inner city. And then at the very end of the evening, I said, now, friends, neighbor to neighbor is in a unique position. You know, they're this $50,000 short to get their loan. They've got the plans. They've processed with the city fathers. The architects have drawn. The financiers have prepared. The only thing that's missing is 50000 dollars now I need to tell you what happened to me on Tuesday. On Tuesday, someone comes into this church and they are doing some other business and then they look around the corner and they come on in and they said, oh, I want to talk with you. They sit down in the committee room, we start talking. God had been moving on their heart to give some money. When they walked out, there was a $10,000 pledge, which has probably already been turned in, on a matching-per-matching basis for neighbor-to-neighbor. Can you say Amen. So our 31000 is down to 21000 but it gets better than this. On that very same evening, after I've finished my supper, I look at my phone and I have a text. And the text is from another member. Now listen, when you're in God's will, you don't have to be afraid. If God calls you to stretch your personal finances a little bit, don't be afraid. There's a fantastic testimony coming somewhere along the road. So I'm there. And I get this text, and it says, Hi, Pastor Kelly. We want to support the end-to-end fund. Well, good. I always like to hear that. The end-to-end fund that is 34000 short. By the way, friends, I know for a fact we're already down to $30,000 on this just between the services, all right? So what's come in, what was coming in, and I had somebody say to me, there's another 1000 towards it as he was walking out of this room between the services. I would like to propose a dollar-to-dollar match for fifteen thousand dollars can you say amen, friends this would get to 30 K from our church well he didn't know that early in the day somebody had already pledged 10 now I did something you might not like I said I don't want you to give all that money so I said why'd I say it because if two couples that's four people if two couples could pledge even half of the money Why can't 400 other people get the other half? Now, should I not get to put my money in? And by the way, my wife has filled out the check. It's already been turned in. She said to me, how much money do you want to put in? Now, I'm not telling you how much money I put in. I didn't tell you who put this money in. But here's what I told my wife. We agreed on an amount. I said, but don't take it from any other fund. Don't rob Peter to pay Paul. Now, she knows this. Friends... If God was not in front, we could be afraid. But since that's how we minister to the poor and the ones lacking educational opportunity and culture, maybe it would be all right if the other 400 of us said, You got the first 16, we'll get the other 16. And starting today, I don't know where we'll be on Monday morning when I see the treasure, but starting today, you just need to know that God has gone before us and said, there ought to be an expansion on this ministry and I'm encouraging you all to do it. And I went to some people who could do a little bit more than normal and they're leading the way, so you just follow along and everything will be okay. Friends, if our churches are going to be revived then they will have to be saved from the spiritual stalking of the evil one who uses blessings and weaponizes them against us to destroy the beauty of our simple Christian walk. Now, many of you are living this way already. Praise the Lord. But remember how I started this? Spirit of prophecy. The Lord leaves in darkness no man who has an ear to hear and a heart to understand. Last week after the sermon, I had a physician come to me, not a member of this church, and while I was eating my potluck meal, they sat with me in the back, and they wanted to talk to me about some of the things that I had shared from the front, and they told their own stories of faith raising money, and they said, you know, I don't tell people what to give, because God might tell them to give more. I said, you're exactly right. And along the way, I've never told anybody how much they should give. That's between you and God. But you know what? I want to be a son of heaven. And if nine times out of ten, my wealth is weaponized against me, if it's not properly directed to the advancement of God's cause, I'm not only planning to meet Jesus on the Sabbath day, I'm planning to see Jesus face to face and hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Friends, I don't know what God's going to do. All I know is that every time I turn around, I see the Lord of heaven saying, fear not, I'm with thee, be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will raise you up with my righteous right hand. I don't know where we're headed. All I know is that we're moving from victory to victory. I want to be a part of it. So, Please don't rob Peter to pay Paul. And by the way, friends, Christian discipline with Christian doctrine is still the formula for strong Christianity. So I'm appealing to you. If you've not started systematic giving, if you return your tithe, but you're not systematic with your offerings, it's time to change. Apply some Christian discipline. The car company's not okay with you sending what's left over so you can drive your car around. And Jesus wants to be prioritized so that his work can be robust not weak. I'm appealing to you. Now the song we're going to sing as we close is a song by Wesley. I hope it flows freely from our hearts. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. Friends, this morning, every time I turn around, He's giving me more reasons to proclaim Him as a good, faithful, and generous God. May we take care of the poor in our midst as we support Neighbor to neighbor. Please, no matter what church you're from today, stretch a little bit. Let's see what we can do over the next few weeks, and let's retire this debt. They will still need. For those of you that aren't members of this church, your church could make up the final twenty-one thousand they need. After this church funds its fifty thousand dollar pledge, they are still twenty-one thousand dollars short. So I'm appealing to you. Nothing would please me much more for the next few months than to see a backhoe out there digging the foundation for our ministry to the poor. May God help us as we pull together and may we be strong, not weak. May we add Christian discipline to Christian doctrine and devotion and may we sing the praise of our Lord. know i send email out to all the members of this church there will be an offering collected as you go out the door if you're not prepared for that that's all right if you are go ahead just let's all do what god prompts us to do in his time and place let's pray lord forgive us when we've allowed our stewardship to be twisted by an indulgent culture one that says why not And while I know, Lord, you bless us in heavenly places and you give us joy and you allow us to do things that maybe some others might not be allowed to do. Maybe you've given some, you certainly have more than others. And I'm praying, Lord, may no one here look at someone else. May we just look to you. I know, Lord, that you've called us to lives of abundance and blessing, but I pray, Lord, may that abundance not work for our spiritual ruin. If 9 out of 10 Methodists increased in riches and they had a corresponding decrease in grace, I pray, Lord, may we earn all we can and save all we can, and may we add to it the spiritual financial factor of giving all we can. Lord, I know both of those people that made larger gifts both noted that they didn't think there was a lot of time left for this world. Help us not to be afraid or be presumptuous. But may we be humble before you and faithful. Please bless neighbor to neighbor. Please bless the Montana Mission and all the other missions from our own local backyard to the ones far away on the banks of the world's largest river or the churches that are being built in El Salvador, Lord. Help us to spend our way by putting our treasure over on the other side of Jordan, building up your kingdom. Bless us now to that end. Thank you for the good meals we'll go home to, the nice cars most of us will ride home in, the beautiful church we're finishing worshiping you in, and most of all, the beautiful Savior and Deliverer, Jesus, who's made it all possible in whose name we pray. Amen.